Well, last week we were in John chapter 21, talking about Peter's dark night of the soul. And he experiences what I would consider a dark night. And then we come to the, close to the end of John chapter 21. And Jesus has kind of restored uh, Peter's sense of connection with God, Peter's sense of calling, Peter's confidence in himself, although this would be a lifelong rebuilding as it is with all of us. But Jesus says something interesting to him in verse 18. If you have your Bibles, feel free to follow along. Jesus says, I've got something to say to you, Peter. When you were younger, you used to gird yourself. That's a good word. We should bring it back. (laughs) Gird. You used to gird yourself and you used to go wherever you wanted. But when you grow older, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you. And someone else will take you where you do not want to go. That's an interesting passage. And in Scripture, I've found that there are multiple layers and levels of meaning. As there is with with this passage, for sure. But to me, it's a beautiful description of the dark night of the soul. When we are younger, when we are in our early stages of faith development, our spiritual growth is really a matter of our responsibility. We're in charge of our own spiritual growth. We're in control to some degree. We choose where we want to go. I can choose to do things that will help me grow spiritually, like read my Bible and pray every day. And as the song says, I will grow, grow, grow. Does nobody know that song? Of course. I can choose to rid myself of selfish, sinful, negative, destructive habits and patterns in my life. And I will grow. I can choose to use my gifts in the service of God, in the service of others, in the service of my church community, and I will grow. I choose where I go. But there comes a point in our spiritual journeys where our hands, which up to this point have been so busy doing things that help us grow, will have to stretch out in a posture of surrender and submission. And someone else will gird us. Someone else will take us where we cannot and would not go on our own. That someone is God, and that place is the dark night of the soul. In the dark night of the soul, God liberates us from our attachments, our addictions, the things that we cling to, our idols. But God does this in the dark. And what that means is in the hiddenness of our souls. Underneath our conscious awareness. God takes us to a place that we don't really want to go. And that we can't go on our own. 
There are some attachments that we have in our lives that we cannot liberate ourselves from. God knows this. When we get to this point in our journey, God says, all you can do is stretch out your hands. You're not going to be in charge of this one. You're not responsible for this one. This is something I can only do. And the timing is mysterious. My hunch is that at some point we have given God permission to do this. Maybe it's been in in a a moment of crying out to God, "I, I want to be free, God. Or I want to be the person that you desire me to be. Or a crying out, God, do whatever it takes to help me become the person you created me to be. Whatever it is, at some point we've given God this permission to do this. And God does it in the dark. Where we are not aware. We feel something's going on. But we're not quite sure. We're not conscious of what is happening. Gerald May is a psychiatrist, or he was a psychiatrist for over 20 years. And then he left it because he found the the spiritual care was a better approach to healing and renewal. He said psychiatry is focused on curing. Spiritual care is focused on healing. And he wrote a book, and it's called The Dark Night of the Soul. You can probably guess what it's about. I've read a lot of literature about The Dark Night, and I... I think Gerald Mays is is one of the best that I've read. And I think it's very accessible, even though he does bring psychology into it. And he talks about some of the distinctions or the misconceptions of what the dark night is, because it's become a very common phrase. In fact, in popular culture, any kind of misfortune or difficult or painful time that we find ourselves in, we often refer to it, I'm going through a dark night. He says it's not a dark night just because you've encountered misfortune or you're going through a painful or difficult time. Life is full of painful and difficult times. That doesn't make it a dark night of the soul. Now, dark nights often do include pain and difficulty. But there's something else going on. Another misconception its association with depression and despair. Now often we, when we go through a dark night, we experience depression and despair. The reason for that is the dark night always brings some kind of loss. So there's a grieving involved. And grieving can bring a temporary depression or despair. But all depression and despair is not a dark night of the soul. There's something else going on. Eckhart Tolle has written many books, and I found uh, some of his thoughts very helpful but he, he talks about the dark night of the soul as being overwhelmed by a sense of meaninglessness. That our whole frame of reference uh, for finding meaning in the universe falls apart. And Gerald May says, and I agree with him, that, that meaninglessness is not synonymous with the dark night of the soul. There are many moments in life where we may encounter uh, an overwhelming sense of meaninglessness. In fact, in our sophisticated Western culture, it seems to be a way of life for many of us. Just because we're feeling a sense of meaninglessness does not mean we're in a dark night. Although, in a dark night, we probably will experience some meaninglessness. But there's something else going on. 
Another misconception is that a dark night is for spiritually elite people or people who have arrived in stage four. And the reality is a dark night can happen to anyone, and in some ways it does happen to all of us on some level. Because what a dark night really is is God's hidden activity in the human spirit. And God is always at work in subtle, obscure, hidden ways in our lives. Another misconception is that the dark night of the soul is a one-time event. We go through it once, and then, oh, I'm glad, I'm glad I'm through the dark night of the soul. I'll never have to experience that again. Again, it is an ongoing process. Another misconception is that it is a horrible, unpleasant thing. St. John of the Cross was the first one to start talking about the dark night of the soul, and here's how he describes it. O you guiding night, O night more kindly than the dawn, O you night that united lover with beloved and the beloved in the lover transformed. He calls the dark night the happy night, glad night, night full of grace. Does that sound like a horrible, unpleasant, excruciating event or experience? No. Gerald May says he's walked with some people where their dark night of the soul experience has been pleasant. Now, those are typically exceptions to the rules because we are dealing with loss and we are dealing with some grieving. But even in our most painful experiences of the dark night, we sense deep in our spirit the rightness of what we're going through. We sense the the goodness of it, that there is something liberating happening. Our connection or association of the dark night with this terrible, horrible, excruciating thing is really connected to our understanding of suffering as Christians. We, we focus on suffering as God's way of helping us grow or God's way of purging us. And there's a connection with growth and suffering, but many spiritual thinkers and leaders, including Gerald May, we believe that God's will is not for us to suffer. Suffering is just a part of life. Suffering comes from the circumstances and situations of life. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. God does not inflict suffering upon us because we need to learn some great lesson or we need to be able to open ourselves up in a peculiar way so that we can grow. Suffering happens. It's part of the way. What God does is walk with us through our suffering and our joy, by the way. We just sometimes we don't notice God as much in our joyful moments. But God walks with us in our suffering, and God offers to help us find the gift in whatever circumstances or situation we find ourselves. God is always, even in our most painful, difficult experiences is always offering to help us move towards greater freedom and joy. And sometimes it's in our our suffering that we realize how much we need God's help. But that's different than this belief 
that God inflicts suffering upon us so that we can grow. There's another misconception, and that's that the dark night of the soul is this graduation where we move from stage four into stage five, where we, we get through this dark night, and then all of a sudden we are thrust into this permanent, uh, blissful state of union with God. Much of what I've been talking about in this series is based on the work of uh, Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, uh, many other mystics, Janet Hagberg, The Critical Journey, Gerald May. But Teresa of Avila, she was, she was such a giant in understanding the spiritual development process. And she said this, the longest that I was in this state of union with God was about 30 minutes. And she said this, no one is so advanced in prayer that they do not often have to return to the beginning. Often. So I've been presenting these stages of spiritual growth, and I hope that they've been helpful in some way. I hope that they've brought some insight or some context to your spiritual journey and given you maybe a frame of reference, oh, to understand, okay, that's why I'm feeling that or going through that. But I don't want us to think that as we move through these stages, we finally get to stage five and six, and then we have graduated. Now I am a spiritually elite person. We never get to the point where we're so advanced that we don't have to often, I love that word often, return to the beginning. I think a better way of understanding these, although I'm messing with James Fowler and Evelyn Underhill and Janet Hagberg, who have thought about this more than I have in calling these the stages of faith, but I consider them more dynamics of faith. And in each of these stages, there's different dynamics of healing that happen in our lives. There's different dynamics of of wisdom and insight that we gain. There's different aspects of ourselves that we become more in tune with. And we will have to revisit these dynamics over and over again. Some of us more than others. Some of us have deep pain, deep wounds. And so the first time through the process only really gets you know a couple inches deep into our wounds. That's all we can handle the first round. Then we go back And we realize, oh, okay, there's more there. There's more there in each of those stages or dynamics. I think the most simple definition is this. It's an ongoing process. An ongoing process where God liberates us from our attachments, our idols, our compulsions, freeing us to live out our heart's true desire. And our heart's true desire is to love and be loved. Gerald May, I love this, he says, everything that is authentic about the spiritual life, about the spiritual journey, is constantly moving us towards increasing fulfillment of the two great commandments that God and Jesus give us. Love God, love your neighbors, yourself. Every stage, every aspect of the spiritual life is about moving towards greater fulfillment of those two commands. St. Augustine said, Our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee, O God. All the Christian mystics that I've read say that our deepest longing, our true heart's desire, is for God. I, I believe that. The problem is this. Our senses cannot directly connect with and interact 
with God. I cannot see God with my eyes face to face. I cannot touch God with my hand like I'm touching this podium or whatever it is. I know it's different things to different people. (laughs) We cannot savor God's sweetness, as some of the mystics would say, directly with our five senses. So what we do, being human beings who are very reliant upon our senses, is we are drawn to the things of God that we can touch, that we can feel, that we can taste, that we can see. These are good things. Beauty. All beauty is of God and from God. Truth is of God and from God. Justice is of God and from God. Scripture. The Bible is of God and from God. Here's the problem. It is not God. What we tend to do is we equate the things of God with God. We begin to make them idols in our lives. We become attached to them. All of our vices and our addictions and our attachments come out of our desire for God. Because we can't touch God, taste God, see God, we begin to be drawn to the things we can touch and taste and see. The things of God. One of the things is beauty. We are drawn to beauty. It represents God to us. And I've seen and walked with countless men who in their pursuit of beauty get into sex addictions and pornography. And what originated as a quest for beauty becomes something different altogether. It becomes a compulsion becomes something that enslaves them, which is the very opposite of what God and love do. Remember, the dark night of the soul is liberating us to be free. The very definition of an addiction is that we are no longer free to enjoy it or not, to participate in it or not. I remember walking with one young man and helping him understand that his, the root seed, the root desire of his pornography addiction was his desire for God. And he said, oh, that's great. I'm glad I can understand it. So it's not really that bad then. I said, no, you're not quite following. It's true. Your root desire is not bad. But when we replace God with anything, in this case, his idol had become pornography. He worshipped pornography. He gave his time, attention, and energy to pornography, whether he wanted to or not. That's what an idol is. And when we replace anything for God, we lose our freedom. Jesus says the truth will set us free. And the greatest truth there is is God is God. And when we replace something else for God, we are living in untruth. And the first thing we lose is freedom. Because it's only living in truth that we are set free. Now, pornography, alcohol, drugs, those are obvious ones. But we all have addictions and attachments. We all have idols We all have things that we have replaced for God. 
On Friday morning, I became aware of one of my idols. I had not made my morning coffee before the power went out. (laughs) And after half an hour, 45 minutes, I began to think this could be a problem. So I drove to several local coffee shops in a quest to fulfill my addiction. And when I realized that the power was out in this whole city of Stratford, I panicked. (laughs) And I actually contemplated, how far are you willing to drive, Troy? (laughs) New Hamburg? Kitchener? Toronto? And in that moment, I realized, you have an issue. So I came and worked on my sermon, which was about addictions and attachment. And I thought, this is very fitting. Now, coffee is a socially acceptable addiction, right? And there are degrees of destructive impact of addictions. I mean, the destructive impact of alcohol, drugs, and pornography is, is, is severe. It's serious. I just read a study lately on coffee that says it's wonderful for my health. So... There's no justification at all happening here. Why are you looking at me like that? Uh, There are definitely degrees of, of the impact that our addictions can have on us. But they're still addictions. And when when I come to the point where I'm no longer free to enjoy something or not, no longer free to participate in something or not, that's the key phrase, or not, then that's an idol. Good things can become idols, right? Work. Work is an idol for a lot of people I know. And I'm not going to look at anyone because I don't want to give it away. But some of you live here. Some of you are here. We're addicted to work. It's our God. We would never say it is. Never be a conscious thing, but it's an idol. We give our time, attention, and energy to it whether we want to or not. Working out, eating, TV, there's so many different things that we're attached to and have addictions to. But church can be an addiction, an attachment for people. Worship can be an addiction. And it's one of the, I love the praise and worship movement. I think something really awesome happened. I really do. But I think it is created or actually exaggerated an issue that has always been in in the church. It has made this experience of worshiping an idol, an addiction, an attachment, because it feels so good, right? See, our our thoughts and our images of God, I've talked about that a lot, they can become idols. As soon as we're, this is who God is, that's an idol, because you don't know who God is. God is infinite, you are finite. Don't make... Absolute truth claims with certainty. that's, That's an idol. Your God is now a concept that lives in your brain. But it's also the feelings. Our feelings of and about God are idols and addictions and attachments. And it's often more subtle. We're worshiping and we feel the presence of God. And what slowly happens, or sometimes quickly happens, is we now worship that feeling. Because we equate it with God, right? 
the things of God we slowly equate with God. The scripture, the Bible can become an addiction, an idol, an attachment. In fact, that's what it was for the Pharisees. When Jesus was talking to them, Jesus said, you look to the scriptures. You are always in the Bible. You've made it an idol. And because of that, you can't even see what the scriptures are pointing to, which is me. When we make something an idol, it clouds us to the truth of God. That's what addictions and attachments do because we want to protect our allegiance to our idol. Most, most of this happens subconsciously. But I know more than one Christian who is clearly made an idol of the Scriptures. I was there myself. So the dark night is about liberating us from our attachments so that we are free to love and be loved. Gerald May defines attachment this way. Attachment binds the energy of the human spirit to anything other than love. Remember, love is God. God is love. Our hearts were created. Our souls were created for God. Well, attachment thrives on denial. There's two reasons. The first It keeps our idolatry out of our awareness. Anyone who's addicted or attached, uh, we're we're always in denial, right? Until Friday morning, I was kind of in denial about my coffee addiction. Until we're really confronted with it. And even now, I've already started to justify it. It's not like I'm about to give up coffee, right? We're in denial. Denial does a couple things. It keeps us, it keeps the idolatry out of our awareness. The scriptures, they're not, they're not an idol. Church isn't an idol. Work isn't an idol, etc., etc. The second thing it does, denial, is this. It buries our true desire for love, for God. It's always kind of there. Like I, I, I like what St. Augustine says. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee, O God. So there's always this Restlessness, but it's so buried with all our attachments and addictions, the things that we've tried to fill that God-shaped void with. Well, there's two kinds of dark nights, active and passive. Now, the active dark night, that is when we have to do something to liberate ourselves from our attachments. The passive night, which is what John spends most of his time writing about, with the dark night of the soul. Passive night is when there's nothing we can do. That's when God has to do it. In the dark, deep within our spirits, where God takes us where we do not and cannot go on our own. I'm going to stop there, and we'll pick up uh, the rest of the dark night of the soul. And for those of you who are tired, I promise next Sunday will be the last Sunday of dark night of the soul.